Yes. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kabbalah Coffee. It's great to have you here. So today we talk about what happened before we were here, right? It's a, it's a weird question to ask, right? What happened before this? Well, there's different ways that we could address this question. We could talk about the soul and we could talk about, you know, the spiritual realms. But I want to speak about something a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more closer to home, which is what were we like or what was, not what were we like, what was happening to us right before we were born? What is going on in this unborn state of life before a child is born? What is the state of the fetus? We are not, by, you know, this, the, the, today's conversation is pulled from the Talmud and other sources, as you'll see. I'm, I'm going to throw in a lot of commentaries as well. Um, and it touches on the question of when life begins, but it's by no means, by no means is that the question that we're addressing today, when does life begin? What we're talking about here is what is the status? What is the state of the fetus? Before a child is born, what is it doing? What's, what's going on? And you might say, it's doing nothing. But what, what is it doing? It's nothing, right? It's before birth. It's just there. It's swimming. It's doing the backstroke. Does it do the backstroke? Probably not. Whatever, right? It's just chilling. It's hanging out. And it's all good. And th that might be true on some level. But according to Jewish wisdom, according to Jewish thought, there's a lot more that's going on. So... I have excerpted today a section of the Talmud. Now, let's first take a half a step back and explain what the Talmud is. The Talmud is the great repository, the great magnum opus of Jewish law and ethics and Jewish thought. It includes, fills in the stories of the Bible. It includes commentary on the Bible. It includes a lot of Jewish legal conversation. The truth is, I don't know, I know some of you have studied Talmud before. How can you explain Talmud on one leg? It's like, it's like you gotta try it. It's like, how do you explain Beethoven? How do you break it down? Beethoven, I mean, how do you explain Mozart? How do you explain Chagall? How do you explain Picasso? You gotta see it, you gotta hear it to believe it, you gotta experience it to know it. So my recommendation is, try Talmud, you'll like it. I'm not launching a Talmud course right now, but it sounds like I should, right? I mean, with this, with this plug. Nonetheless, the Talmud is, uh, is this incredible work that, that just weaves together um, analytical thought and legal conversation, and, 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 and it's just, it's beautiful. We're going to talk today about the Talmudic take on what is going on before birth. What is the state of existence before birth? I have in front of me printouts. I'm putting up the <laughs> Yaakov. Uh, Yaakov, Yaakov. Hilarious. Um, I have here papers that we're going to give out. It's two copies per unit. Oh, no, no, it's two. Here, you got to give it as a bundle. Yeah. No, give it to Darren. Yeah. Thank you. Now I don't know which one is which. Whatever. It's all good. I'm going to put it up. Sorry. Oh, we got, uh, oh, Ed. Excellent. Thank you very much. All right, I'm going to pull it up here on the screen so that you're all with me, so that we're all on the same page. I prepared this handout, and by the way, um, life hack, life hack, spoiler alert, not spoiler alert, life hack alert. Um, go to safaria.org, I want to say, safaria.org, is that what it is? Safaria. Anyway, they got a lot of great books, all the, all the great books, all the great Jewish books online, a lot of them in English, many of them in English. 
and you can study and enjoy. Um, Ed, doesn't this remind you of back in the day, KNC? Round the table, yeah, right? Old school. old school, little old school. We have a different setup here. Anyway, okay. More so, Hamish. exactly. It's more Hamish. Overcome. It's for Hanukkah. It's for Hamish. It's warm. Okay. Overcoming folly. Discourse fourteen. That's what, so. Our text is overcoming folly. We're up to discourse fourteen. We're going to get into our mystical text in a moment, but it draws from the Talmud. So we're going to study a bit of Talmud. Okay. Talmud. The Talmudic tractate here that we're exploring is from Nida. Uh, page 30b, and you see there it says in, in the English Nita 30b, and then like a colon, and then 18. That's just because Safaria breaks down the Talmud into paragraphs, and this is for their numbering, paragraph 18 on that, on that side of the page. But don't worry about that. Don't let that alarm you. We're just going to read through it. I'm going to read this, and I'm going to throw in some commentary. Okay, is everybody with me on the same page? Yes, you guys see it? Everyone's got it? Okay. Rabbi Samloy taught. To what is a fetus in its mother's womb comparable? So this rabbi is saying, what's it like? What's the fetus like? What, what, what is it comparable to? To a folded notebook. Lefinkas. It's a folded notebook. Interesting. Interesting description. It's like, uh, yeah, it's like uh, the doctor, the mom goes in for a sonogram. And, uh, and the doctor comes out and says, Mazel tov. Mazel tov, you have a folded notebook. I mean, like, what is this? Anyway, the Talmud says, like, a folded notebook. By the way, we don't have folded notebooks today. What do you mean by folded? We have, huh? No, but that's like a book. We have books. Back in the day, they had notebooks that were folded, like interesting scrolls. All right. So the Talmud continues. And it rests with its hands on its two sides of its head at the temples, its two arms on its two knees, and its two heels on its two buttocks. And its head rests between its knees. Okay, so basically it's describing how the fetus in utero is folded up. It's kind of folded into itself in the, what we would call today, very aptly named the, what kind of position, the? Fetal position. Yeah. Correct? All right, hold on. That wasn't, I wasn't getting scholarly. I'm just saying what we call today the fetal position, the Talmud is describing. Let's continue. But listen to this. Because I am, I'm up to, one, two, three, four, five, the fifth line over here. And its mouth is closed. And its umbilicus, that's the umbilicus cordis, <laughs> for those of you that speak uh, Talmudic translation. And its umbilicus, I'm sure that's probably the, the medical uh, description, its umbilicus is open. So its mouth is closed. In other words, the point of the Talmud is it's not eating, it's not sustaining itself by eating. It's not like, oh, I could use some sushi in here. It's not, it, it, its mouth is not what gives it sustenance. It gets sustenance from the umbilical cord from its mom as the Talmud continues. And it eats from what its, mother's eat, from what its mother eats and it drinks from what, it, what its mother eat, drinks. Ah, I can't speak. But it eats what its mother eats. It drinks from what its mother drinks, by the way. This is, pause right here for a moment. This is, I mean, the Talmud goes back, what? 1,700, 1,600 years. And already you see here, even without saying it, the message is, watch what you eat, right? Be careful because it's not only about you, it's about what you're talking about food, right? It's also what your, what your unborn child is literally living off of right now for nine months. Okay. Um, doesn't end there either, by the way. All right, but we'll, we'll continue. Let's continue. Um, and it does not emit 
excrement lest it kill its mother. Okay. It's, and the commentaries liken it to the mana. You know, remember the mana? I say remember. It's like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. No, the mana, the biblical mana, the miracle of the food that fell from heaven when the Jews were, um, were traversing the desert for 40 years. So it says that the manna was such, okay, I'm going to use like modern terms. The food was so optimized for the human biology, for the human physiology, that it didn't produce any waste whatsoever. Let me explain without getting too detailed here. Typically, the food that we eat, yeah, after we eat at some point, there is waste. What's pshat? I'm giving like a Hebrew term. What does it mean that there's waste? It means that part of what we ate, the body needs and takes in, and part of it, the body says, I don't need this, and it rejects. That's the way it works, every food. But imagine a food that's so optimized to the human condition. Imagine a food so optimized that literally 100% of the food is used by the body with no waste. That was the manna. The manna from heaven was not just spiritual heavenly food. It was optimized for the human body in such a perfect way because it was perfect divine food that it produced no waste. So when you hear the, the sages say that the manna didn't, there was no waste. People didn't have to go to the bathroom. What does it mean? It's a miracle? I mean, I guess, yeah, food from heaven is a miracle. But, but what does that part mean? It means that it was optimized 100%. It's like, I'm going to give a completely you know, out of left field example. Solar energy. We weren't expecting that right now, right? <laughs> solar energy. How do we get the solar energy? Solar energy. In the 1980s, the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Brooklyn, New York, was speaking about the need for America and other countries to be, ener what's the word? Energy independent. independent. So that we're not reliant on oil and other that come from dictators and despots and other things, which creates an entire complication on every level because it means that now there has to be you know when you when you're reliant on on a nation for something right so suddenly now you have to do things and 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 agree to things and subjugate yourself to things that otherwise you might say no to right when you're in when you're in a place of need when you're in a in a um that's what i'm looking for when you're in a not susceptible, when you're in a dependent, whatever, condition, position, so now you know, the, the, the odds are stacked against you. Fine. So Rebbe was speaking about energy independence. And the Rebbe said there happens to be a source of energy that is untapped, <laughs> called the sun. And, it and, and studies have proven again and again, not proven, studies have shown again and again that the sun I think the, a study that I saw a few years ago, I've mentioned it many times, the sunlight, if you, capture, if you captured the sunlight that is shining on the U.S., in the, in the, in the entire United States for one hour, could power the United States for a full year. If you were able to fully capture the energy, not capture a little bit of the sunlight, fully capture it and then convert it into usable energy without any loss or degradation of that energy, we have, we have the resources. It could power the, 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 the country for a year. Now, I'm not saying it could power Bitcoin mining. That's a different conversation, right? Crypto is, you know, we'll leave crypto aside for the moment. 
but uh, this was before crypto um, that I saw the study. But nonetheless, there's a tremendous untapped power. The problem is that as human beings, we are imperfect, and what we create by and large is imperfect. So the systems that we've created to capture the energy of the sun and then convert it, solar energy, and then convert it into usable energy, it de de degrades. So like out of the potential energy that we could capture, we capture a percentage. And of that percentage, we can only convert a percentage of it into stuff that we can use. So it's cut multiple times along the way until we have, you know, like this, and it's like, well, it's not even worth it, perhaps, but it's, it's, it's getting more and more optimized, you know, as technology develops. My point is that the same things with food. Human food, the food that we create, the food that, that we grow, is not 100% optimized to the human body, to the human physiology. And therefore, there is a percentage of it that the body says we have no use for. We, as in we the body, or I the body, have no use for this, therefore, see you later. That's the way food works. When God designs food, it's better than Johnny Ives. Ives? Was that his name? Johnny. Who was the Apple guy? Who was the Apple designer? Oh, I know. Oh. Was that I? Some, who remembers the Apple? The guy, uh, I just remember Steve Wozniak. Yeah, yeah but no, but yeah. Steve Jobs' this guy. Yeah, I don't know. Johnny Ives? Okay. All right. You guys, come on. Come on. Somebody fact check me here. All right, who's got it? Somebody unmute and fact check. All right, I think Johnny Ives or Johnny Ive. I think Johnny Ives. Doesn't matter. Anyway, he was a great designer. The point is, even he is, is not 100% um, efficient. The point here is something, it's something fascinating. That when the fetus is in the womb, getting back to our story here, when the fetus is in the womb, the Talmud says, Rabbi Simulai teaches, it does not emit excrement lest it kill its mother. And according to the commentaries, what it means is that it's like the manna from heaven, where the, the, the fetus takes in 100% and doesn't let out anything which could be a blessing or the opposite, depending on what the mother is eating. And by the way, this idea of in utero influence of a parent and a child is not just, was it Johnny Ives? I-V-E. Ive. Oh, I was going plural on him. How many Johnny Ives do we know? All right. <laughs> right, exactly. Make it a possessive. Johnny Ives design is what I meant the whole time. So the, the, ba the fetus, not, not to suggest that the m food that the mother eats is always mana from heaven designed for the fetus, but what it is saying is there's 100% influence and therefore the stakes are that much higher, all puns intended. You with me on this? The stakes are higher because the, the baby can't let anything go. Everything goes at 100%. You know what it's like? It's like children after they're born also. <laughs> It's a hundred percent influence. They don't, you think kids ignore stuff? Everything goes in, right? If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. If you've been a kid, and who hasn't really? Think about it, think about it. Everyone here has been a kid. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Everything makes an impression. Some things you'll hide more than other things. Some things you'll never tell that person that it made an influence, but you know that it had an influence. Everything has an influence, 100%. You don't let anything go. The body doesn't forget, right? We know this today. The body doesn't forget, right? Trauma, you can try to forget trauma. It's there. Okay, let's move on.
Back, back into the womb. Like? <laughs> what? Do you know what the mana looked like? The, 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 the Torah says, the Bible says, the mana looked like, it looked like white crystal something, something. I, it describes it. But I've never seen a good depiction based on that description. <laughs> it all says that the monarch fell with gemstones, which is kind of cool. It's like, oh, perfect food and bling. This is great. It's a great morning. It fell every morning. The monarch fell every morning. But what did they distinguish between the gemstones and the mana? You would think. That's why, that's why people typically bite gemstones. You know, you bite it to make sure that it's a gemstone and not mana. Because you never know when the mana is coming back. Okay. So here we go. So now back, into, back, back, uh, back in the womb. What do you call twins, by the way? Womb-mates. Come on. You guys know that one. I've told that so many times. Back. Thank you. I'm here all week. Back to the story. But once. Listen to this. But once. Back. So this is the first paragraph here. Three lines from the bottom of that first English paragraph. But once it emerges into the Aver Ha'olam, into the airspace of the world, in other words, into this atmosphere, it's so crazy. We all started off in a different reality. It's crazy. It's wild. I don't think we ever think about this stuff. We didn't start off like this, breathing air. We were like... Guppies. No, Guppies? It's crazy. It's cra the whole thing makes no sense. Anyway, that's amazing, but it makes no sense. Let's go. Let, huh? it's, it's like people wonder, like, where are the miracles? Hello? Are we, are we opening our eyes? All right, but let's go back. But once it emerges, once the fetus emerges into the airspace of the world, which is a completely foreign environment, when you think about where it started off, the clo and how we're not even talking about conception. All right, this whole thing. So when the air, once the fetus emerged in the airspace of the world, the closed limb, in other words, that which was closed, which means the mouth, opens, and the open limb, in other words, that which was open, which is the umbilicus, umbilical cord, closes as otherwise it cannot live for even an hour. In other words, what must happen for a baby to live upon birth is that the mouth must open, has to breathe, the lungs have to function, you know, like the lungs are collapsed and they have to expand. You know, you read about this. I'm getting a little goosebumps. You read about this stuff and you're like, oh, my God, how does this ever work? Right? You're like, you, I don't know. Anybody could be a doctor and not believe in God <laughs> or whatever. I, I mean, I just, okay, but its mouth, which was closed, has to open. And the umbilical cord, which was open, now has to be closed. It's just, it's a, it's a different system now. It's a different way of living. It's a different existence once the child is born. Rabbi, does the umbilical cord have to be cut for the first hour for the child to live? Uh, I don't know. No, it just means that, it, I don't know that it means literally an hour, um, but it means that it's no longer getting, are you saying, could it live plugged, plug, I don't know. You just cut right away. No, but I think I was asking theoretically, if it wasn't cut, could the baby live outside with an umbilical cord? I don't know. That's next level helicopter parenting. I'm just going to say, we talk about like helicopter parenting. It's like, that's next level. It's like, nope, you're staying plugged in. I mean, that's, all right. Anyway, that's going to be very awkward. It's going to be. I heard of uh, lotus birth. 
No. It's a birth where they literally birth these babies and they leave the umbilical connector uh, and they have the sack and they leave it until it falls off for like oh, hours. Interesting. Okay, so I guess so I guess a lot. So I, I guess the answer is it could la it could be more than an hour. But I think the point is I don't think it's the hour. The hour means literally an hour. It just means that this is what has to happen next. Is what was closed opens, what was open closes, and that's kind of the next stage of, of life. Now, the Talmud continues. Now we're on, if you have the paper, we're on the second half of the page where it says, need the 30 be 19. So find the one that says, need the 30 be 19 at the top. Listen to what it says. And a candle is lit for it above its head. This is in utero. A candle is lit above its head. And now you're thinking, really? <laughs> a candle lit above, what, like a Hanukkah candle? Like, what kind of candle are we talking about here? A candle is lit above its head. No, it's not a physical candle, obviously, obviously, obviously. Something, something you have to know when you learn Talmud, you got to know, first of all, you got to learn with commentaries, number one, because otherwise, good luck. Number two, even without commentaries, you kind of can sense when you have a literal statement than when you have a more metaphorical statement. This would be more of a metaphorical statement. And a candle is lit, above, is lit for it above its head, which means, essentially, that there is a divine glow there is a divine radiance. Call it a soul. There's a spiritual, it says that a candle, the soul of the, soul of the human being is a candle of God. So this candle, this soul, this spark, this spirit is above its head. Which, by the way, according to many commentaries, speaks to this idea that before birth, the soul is not integrated fully with the body, even though a soul I said before, we're going to talk a little bit, brush, uh, touch a little bit on, on um, not the origins of life, but the, when, when life begins, what we see here is that there is some measure of life and some measure, obviously, physical life, even though it's completely dependent on the mother at that point, so it's kind of more of an appendage life than an, in, uh, than an independent life. And it has a soul, but the soul, the candle, that's the candle's euphemism for soul here, the candle, soul, is above its head, meaning it's not integrated yet with the fetus unborn child. It's not fully integrated to call it its own life, if that makes sense. Okay. And it gazes, says the Talmud, it gazes from one end of the world to the other. That means that it has a vision, it has a spiritual vision that is unlimited by the typical limitations that you and I possess. Let me explain that now again for a moment. I told you I'm going to read this and, and, and share with you commentaries and a perspective and that's exactly what I'm doing. So when it comes to um, physical perception, so physically we can only see a certain amount of distance and we cannot perceive further, right? If you're on Lookout Mountain in Chattanooga, yeah? Is that where it is? Yep. Yeah, you can see like or any mountain you can see far, but there's still a limit to how far the eye can see. Um, when it comes to perception, not physical sight, but, but understanding. We're also limited in our perception. We're also limited to how far we can perceive, how far we can anticipate, right? Even the greatest uh, minds, the greatest creative geniuses only can have, you know, only have a certain amount of perspective and vision. It only goes so far. It doesn't go to the end of all time. It's just not possible. What the Talmud is telling us is that the soul, right, the soul before it integrates with the body. The soul then is still in its pre-integration, pure divine state. 
a soul originates as a piece of God, and as a piece of God, the soul is unlimited. Just like God is unlimited, the soul is also likewise unlimited. Not because of its own value, but because it is a piece of God. It mirrors its source. And as its source has unlimited, unfettered vision, it too has unfettered vision. So the soul gazes from one end of the world to the other. It doesn't mean that it's like it's using a periscope to peek out somewhere. And of course, it's not a physical thing. It means that its vision, it can see from the beginning to the end. Because a soul, untainted by the body and by the limitations, has a vision that you and I cannot even comprehend. The closest I can explain this is a premonition. Many, many years ago, maybe I added an extra many, many years ago, several years ago, we had a speaker who spoke about dreams and premonitions, which is actually a cool topic to speak about this time of year because we have Joseph, the Joseph story with a lot of dreams and premonitions and prophecies you know, in, in a dreamlike state. And he asked the question, we had a crowd, maybe we had 50 people at the old building, <laughs> in the living room, <laughs> in the shul, and um, he asked the question, by raise of hand, how many of you are, uh, had this experience or know someone had this experience where you had a dream about someone passing away and within a very short amount of time they passed away? And it's not because they were sick and died, but it's, you just had a premonition about something, you know, bad happened and it happened. And a lot of hands went up. My hand went up also. My grandfather had a story about it. He dreamt of a neighbor randomly passing away and the neighbor passed away, like the next day or was found the next morning, whatever it was, like some crazy thing. And, um, and he explained, that according to Kabbalah, basically that what happens when we sleep is that the soul peeks out a little bit from the body. You know, typically the soul operates encased completely inside the body, which means that the soul does not access its full, true, unlimited perception. The soul is kind of like limited to whatever influences the body allows the soul to see. So imagine, you know, imagine a cup and imagine something inside the cup, like a, like, you know, a person or a brain, whatever inside the cup, and it's closed and you can't see anything. Imagine you poke a few holes for the eyes and a few more holes for the ears, a few more holes for the nose, another hole for the mouth. And then you say to the creature inside, that's how you're gonna get all your information through the holes in your head, basically, right? So the soul has vision and awareness and perception, but it's kind of covered up inside the body, and we only give it, we, God, whatever, it's only given certain portals to information. But when we sleep, the Talmud says, sleep is one, elsewhere the Talmud says, that sleep is 1 60th of death. It's a taste of death. It's a mini death. What does that mean? It's one sixtieth of death. Death means that the soul separates completely from the body. Soul and body part, go, part and go their own ways. The body goes down, the soul goes up, metaphorically, of course. Sleep, the soul peeks out a little bit from the body. So whereas when we're awake, the soul is completely covered, if you will, by the body and consciousness, Right? When we sleep, the soul has the opportunity, imagine, you know, when, when the body's sleeping, the soul now can look up a little bit above, above the rim of the cup and look around. And the soul sometimes can get information and see things that the soul could not see otherwise when we're awake. When we're sleeping, the soul can see things 
that we cannot see when we're awake. In a similar way, before the child is born, there is a soul associated with, the, with, with that fetus, with that unborn child. It's not yet integrated. It's not yet stuck inside of it. It's not yet limited by the body's perception. And so therefore, it can gaze from one end of the world to the other. Does that make sense? Sort of? Okay. As it is stated, the Talmud quotes a verse from Job. When his lamp shined above my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. When his lamp shined above my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, that's referring to the fetal condition, to the state of life as a fetus. And do not wonder how one can see from one end of the world to the other, the Talmud says. They just say, whoa, how can the fetus, how can the soul possibly see from one end of the world to the other? The Talmud says, don't wonder, don't ask that question. Why? Because as a, since a person can sleep here in this location, Israel, Babylonia, whatever, and see a dream that takes place in a distant, sorry, and see a dream that takes place in a place as distant as Spain. That's the Talmud's analogy. Where, where are they? Ba Babylonia. The Babylonian Talmud. They were in Babylonia, which is uh, Iraq. Mm -hmm. Yeah, modern-day Iraq. So that's, that's where the Talmud was composed. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, 1,700 years ago when things were a little bit different. Um, and, and so the Talmud is saying, a person could be here and have a dream of something going on across the world, and we're, we're not bothered by that because... It can happen. It can happen that we can think about and dream about something across the world. That's not a contradiction. Because we're not talking about physical sight. We're talking about perception, awareness, soul awareness. And I love how the Talmud gives the example of a dream. Because a dream is exactly the analogy that I gave when the soul can peek out from the body. So if the soul can peek out from the body in a dream, it can certainly have a vision before it's integrated with the body. Yes? Make sense? I'm just going to assume yes. All right. Let's continue. The next paragraph, Nida 30b, uh, paragraph 20, right in the middle of that second page, or second side of the page. Listen to this. The Talmud says, and there are no days when a person is in a more blissful state than those days when he is a fetus in his mother's womb. In other words, the best, <laughs> li hashtag living my best life, yeah, <laughs> that hashtag, is when, when is the best life, hashtag, hashtag goals or whatever, yeah, is when we were a fetus. As is stated in the previous verse from Job, if only I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, and the proof that this verse is referring to gestation is as follows, which are the days that have months but not have years, but do not have years, you must say that these are the months of gestation. In other words, why in the verse of Job does it say, if only I were I were as in the months of old. Who says months of old? What a weird expression. It's referring to the nine months of gestation, and it's kind of looking back wistfully and saying, ah, things were so good. Now, why were things so good? Let's explain. Let's just break it down. Number one, <laughs> no need to worry about food. Number two, no need to worry about spirituality. You have everything. Physically and spiritually, you have the magic combo. You have all the physical comforts. I mean, think about it. Yeah, what do people love? People work so hard for so many years to do what? To retire. Because when they retire, what's going to happen? They could just relax and not have to work. And then do what? Eat and drink and be merry. Great. That was, that sounds like a fetus. 
Right? Is that, I mean, that's the, right? what's the ideal state? To be a fetus, to go back in and say, I don't want to worry about anything. I just want to relax and float, and that's it. And all my, all, and I just sleep all day and relax. That's it. I wish teenagers remembered. <laughs> remembered how much love their moms, how much their moms did for them. Sorry about Georgia. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know. I can't figure this out. <laughs> Whoops. I thought there was no way they were going to lose that. I know. He, yeah. Okay. Back, okay. Back to our story. So there's nothing, there, no, there are no days that are more blissful than the days that we were in the fetus. No physical concerns. And, and we just said before, the spiritual vision is amazing. The soul sees from one end of the world to the other. And it has unlimited perception. It's not limited by, by the body. It's almost like we have optimal states of both body and soul. The body is taken care of. No, no concerns with the body. And the soul is not at all um, hampered by the body. This is great. It's not real life, though. It's, it's not life. It's, it's great. It's not li- You know what else is great? The soul before it came down altogether. Sure, it's great. Like, so before we even continue with this, I just need to mention this, which should emerge from this conversation. Life is not about <laughs> being comfortable. That's not what life is. That's what heaven is. That's what the womb is. That's not what life is. Clearly God has other plans, and part of that plan includes struggle. And we could speak now for the next hour, two hours, three hours, each day this week, aha, and each day this month, about why, about the value of struggle. But that's what we know. What we know is that beyond heaven and beyond the womb is this. And we believe that this is not a downgrade, this is an upgrade. Because life is found in the struggle. Life is found in the tension between body and soul. Life is found in the choices that we have to make to survive and to thrive, to feed our bodies in a healthy way, to feed our souls in a healthy way, to nurture our, our entire being holistically. I mean, this is, this is the challenge of life, but that's where real life is lived. But the Talmud is just bringing out this idea that if you want to look from a comfort level, it was never as, never as good as, the, as then. For the body and soul, never as good. Um, okay, let's continue. Oh, gets even better. Gets even better. Bottom little shtickle, bottom piece on that page. And a fetus is taught the entire Torah while in the womb. Unbelievable. The fetus is taught the entire Torah. As it is stated, and he taught me, and he said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. And it also states, as I was in the tent of my, sorry, as I was in the days of my youth, when the Converse of God, converse of God was upon my tent. Different verses that speak to this idea that allude to the fact that the fetus is taught the entire Torah whilst in the womb. Now, if you notice the word fetus is not bolded. You see that fetus? You see that fetus? You see that word fetus there in the bottom of that page before we flipped it? Yeah, it says the fetus, but a fetus is not in bold. Now, that means that it's not in the Talmudic text itself. It's the, the interpolated, that's what they call it, 
that's what the kids are calling it, the interpolated commentary that's kind of like to make the flow of the Talmud, the, the translation work better, it's thrown in a fetus. But the truth is, it's a little bit, little bit questionable whether it's the fetus that's taught the Torah or whether it's the soul of said fetus that's taught the entire Torah, right? Does, can the fetus understand the Torah yet? Or is it the soul of the fetus that gets a vision of the Torah? Now, or you could say, well, the soul of the fetus, we just call it a fetus, and that could be true. But if I were translating it based on what I understand, based on Kabbalah of this concept, I would, I would focus more on the soul than the actual limbs of the fetus studying the Torah. How is it taught the Torah? Bereshis in the beginning, bara lekem Hashem create. Yeah, that's how it's taught, word by word. In what language? So there's different ways that we can study. There's what we might call linear study. And then there is, what's the opposite of linear study? I don't know. Then there's all at once study. So, for example, let's say there's art around this room. Let's say you look at a piece of art. You're, you're taking in the image all at once. Now, you might focus on it for a few moments or even a few minutes or even an hour. Sure, no problem with that. But you discover the painting, you discover the art all at once, and then you work to break it down. As opposed to when you study or when you listen to someone, you first hear it in a linear fashion, and then you try to put the pieces together. Are you with me? It's the opposite. The, the, the vision works the opposite of the hearing. Vision is all at once, and then you break it down. And the auditory, when you hear something, it's broken down, and then you try to put it together. That make sense? That's why some people like listening to a podcast better than watching something. Why? Because you can kind of put it together on your own. Or reading a book versus watching a movie. Because that way you can put together the scenes, put together the characters, you know, in your own mind as opposed to seeing it. Different ways, different ways of processing information. So when, when we say that the fetus of the soul, my understanding is the soul of the fetus is taught the entire Torah, it doesn't necessarily mean in a linear fashion the way we learn. Right? Because it's a quick nine months. Nine months of studying the entire Torah? Pretty quick learner. Man, I used to be really smart. <laughs> I learned the whole Torah in nine months. Right? But it, it's almost like the vision. It's almost like you see everything. And there's clarity. And then life, this life, is about unpacking that piece by piece. It sounds like, like, a soft, like an instantaneous software update. Like right. you're in one state, update happens. All of a sudden, you're in the instantaneous next state where there's no necessarily like learning time where it's just all the information is like passed in. It's, like like it's an upgrade. Everything is there. Correct. But it's there in a way that's a little bit bigger. You see, the challenge, everything has its pros and cons. The, the, the negative of hearing something or reading something is it's piece by piece. You don't get the full picture. You have to put it together on your own. But the value of that is that you own it. Once you, once you know it, you own it. As opposed to when you see something, it makes the, the big impression. You get the whole thing. You get the whole picture at once. But you then have to unpack it, and then you may not fully get it. It may not ever be. It's more, from, it's more external than internal, if that makes sense, because it came from the outside. It's an upgrade, update that happened from the outside. By the way, speaking of which, I updated the latest Mac OS over here. 
like a few weeks ago, and ever since my Wi-Fi has been connecting much slower. And I thought everyone should know that. Used to be when I when I open up my computer, instant lock with the Wi-Fi. Now I'm waiting. And who has 20 seconds to wait? <laughs> Not I. Like what is this? This is ridiculous. Why'd you upgrade this if it was br- going to break something? Anyway, back to my uh, back to the story. Back to the story. So you have things that operate in an instantaneous fashion, and this is. The, my understanding of what it means that the fetus is not the entire Torah, not in a linear fashion that there's an angel that says, all right, listen to the first word, here's the meaning, here's the second word, here's the meaning. It's not like the fetus is learning like that. It's about a vision and an awareness and a perception of truth. It's like an epiphany or it's like, a, it's like an epiphany where suddenly everything is clear. You have clarity, like a moment of clarity and vision. You just see everything and it makes sense. And you might even struggle to explain it to someone else, but to you it makes sense. It's like you have perfect clarity on something. We've all had those moments in, in, in whatever area it's been where things were just perfectly clear. Well, before we were born, we had perfect clarity on truth, purpose, the bigger stuff. Let's continue. Let's continue. However, not so fast. And once the fetus emerges into the airspace of the world, that's again the euphemism, or that's the way that the Talmud refers to birth. Once the fetus emerges, an angel, listen to this, unbelievable. Imagine having this job. An angel comes and slaps it on its mouth, causing it to forget the entire Torah. As it is stated, sin crouches at the entrance i.e., when a person enters the world, he's immediately liable to sin due to his loss of Torah knowledge. So what that means is right as a person, right before a person emerges into the world, so the, an angel taps, um, slaps the fetus on its mouth, and it forgets the entire Torah. And according to some, that's what creates the little... I got the stash. It's hard to see. That's what creates the little... Uh, what do you call it? I don't know. Whatever that thing is. Divot? Yeah, the divot. Boop! A little, uh, a little angel touched by an angel. Okay. By the way, does it make sense to anybody? I'm going to say no, right? It's like, what? Hold on. The angel is causing... So, many questions. First of all, why know everything only to forget everything? Number one. Number two, what's up with this angel and this, like, devious situation? Like, oh, boom, you forget, you forget, you forget. Like, okay, what's ridiculous? Number three... Why is it slapping it on its mouth? If you want to cause someone to forget something, you think like a bop on the head would do it. Like, what's the mouth? You with me on that question? What's with the mouth? I'll share with you what the Maharal of Prague said. The great Maharal of Prague, creator of the golem. Remember the golem? I saw his grave. You saw his grave in Prague? Prague. Nice. Is it like a, like a whole building or just a... No, it's part of the... Part of the cemetery. cemetery but, uh, nice. Yeah. So old. Yeah. He's this 1500s? Yeah. yeah. 1500s. Anyway, the great Maharal of Prague was a mystic. He was a great rabbi. He was a Kabbalist. He, he did... He was, he was the bomb. He created artificial intelligence before... Long, many stories about this, but not, not for today. Um, the morale says, what's the meaning that the angel hits it on its mouth and how does that cause it to forget the Torah learning? What does that even mean? What does any of this mean? The morale says the following. What 
what the Talmud is telling us is that as the fetus emerges in the world, what's happening here is that the soul is fully, is now going to integrate with the body. And as long as the soul remained hovering, remember we said the candle above its head, as long as the soul remains hovering, yeah, what happens is, as long as the soul remains hovering, the soul can have a perfect vision, an untainted vision, an unblemished vision, of have a clarity and a vision of what's right, what's wrong, etc. Perfect vision. But the moment birth is about to happen or happens, the soul is now integrating with the body. And now, as I mentioned before with the cup analogy, now the soul is somehow limited by the body's limitations. The body's weaknesses create a weakness in the soul as well. If the body has a vice or temptation, if the body has a, a challenge or whatever it is, that affects the soul. If the body has questions, the soul is going to have questions. The body is now affecting the soul, and thus it says that the soul forgets the Torah, not in totality, but it no longer is the only operating system, so to speak, within that, that, that space. It's now contending with the body that, 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 that dramatically um, affects it. Why is that contained in the phrase, slaps it on its mouth? So there's something in Jewish law called the makabapatish, which means the final hammer strike. When you finish, when you finish you know, building something, the final hammer, the final nail, right, that's when it's finished. That's when you finish the item. So what's the final complete step for a human being? It's the mouth, communication. What is a human being? Matt, do you mind if I'm um, just closing the door? Thank you. A human being is primarily a communicator. In, in, in Judaism, we call the human being the medaber, the speaker. Even though we have intelligence and we have other capabilities, it's our ability to communicate that defines us as human beings. So what the Talmud is saying, according to the Maral, is some, unbelievable. It's not that the hitting the mouth causes the soul to forget the Torah. That doesn't make any sense. No. The hitting of the mouth is symbolic of now you're human, now you can speak, now you're a mensch. Once you're a human being, now your soul is now inside your body and now you forget the Torah. It's not about the mouth. It's not about the mouth. It's about birth. It's about the soul integrating with the body. And now the soul is no longer on its own, knowing all and seeing all and experiencing all. Now it's stuck inside a body and now it's contending with an opposing force, so to speak. It's contending with a force of, not to, not to, like, not to demonize the body, but it's contending with a force that doesn't have the same perception, doesn't have the same goals, doesn't have the same ideals, doesn't have the same doesn't feel like it has the same purpose, and now it's, it's, it's contending with an adversary as opposed to uh, what feels like an adversary so often as opposed to an ally. Um, let's continue, and now we're getting to the main feature of why we're reading this today, the Great Oath. Nida 30b, and this is section 24 from Safaria. And a fetus does not leave the womb until the angels administer an oath to it. It's made to take an oath, as it is stated, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. The verse is interpreted as follows, that to me every knee shall bow. This is referring to the day of one's death. As it is stated, all those who go down to the dust shall kneel before him, and every tongue shall swear. This is referring to the day of one's birth. As it is stated in the description of a righteous person, he was clean hands and a pure heart, who has not taken my name in vain, has not sworn deceitfully, i.e. he has kept his oath that he, that he took before he was born. So the verse from Isaiah that says, 
where God says, to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear, that's referring to death and birth respectively, every knee shall bow by death, every tongue shall swear before birth or at the time of birth. What is the oath? Again, simply, the soul is administered an oath before the soul integrates with the body, before the fetus emerges into the world, before that life is officially born, it's given an oath. What's the oath? Final paragraph. And what is the oath that the angels administer to the fetus, or to the soul of the fetus? Here's the, here's the oath. Be righteous and do not be wicked. And, even, and the oath continues. And even if... The entire world says to you, you are righteous, consider yourself wicked. Listen to the, you hear that? There's three points so far. Be righteous, do good things. Don't be wicked, don't do bad things. And even if the whole world says, you're a tzaddik, you're the best, be humble. Don't be arrogant. Don't be narcissistic. Consider yourself as though you're not perfect. Consider yourself, wicked maybe is a little bit harsh, but consider yourself as imperfect as a work in progress. So do, do right, don't do wrong, and be humble. That's a good oath. That's, a, that's straight up some quality oathing right there. I'm gonna, call, I'm gonna call that quality oathing. And no, that's the oath, that's it, that's the oath. Oh, no, no, sorry, the oath continues a little bit. And know that the Holy One, blessed be He, is pure. God is pure. And His ministers are pure. And the soul that He gave you is pure. If you preserve it in a state of purity, all is well. But if you do not keep it pure, I, the angel, shall take it from you. This is the oath that's given to the soul before birth. Remember these things. Be righteous. Don't be wicked. And even if everyone says you're such a great salad, such a great person, be humble. This leads us directly into, into today's conversation. Because, as we described last time, which was, a f I want to say, a few weeks ago. Yeah? Last week was Thanksgiving weekend, and I was on the road from Texas. Anyway, this takes us into our conversation that we started last time, which is, we know, we know, based on Kabbalah, that we have two different souls, which are two different operating systems. We have, and we've been speaking thus far about one soul, but we have a second soul. This is where things become complicated. We have what the Kabbalists call a godly soul, but we also have what the Kabbalists call an animal soul. Now, if you study any Kabbalah or Hasidic philosophy, this is one of the most basic, one of the most core fundamental teachings about the human condition. We are a composite of two completely different forces. We have a higher self and we have a lower self. And sometimes we wonder, why is it that one moment I can feel so good and altruistic and holy, and the next moment I can feel so lowly and, and base and, and, and corrupted or corrupt? How is that possible? Who am I? What's wrong with me? And Kabbalah says, Mazel tov, you're normal, you're a human being. Because a human being has two souls that pull in diametrically opposed directions. The godly soul pulls us up to higher things, to altruistic things, to good things, to valuable things, to purposeful, to purposeful things, 
and the animal soul pulls us down to low things, material things, physical things, useless things, and sometimes also in negative things. Last time, we quoted from the book of Tanya, and we explained, and we, we cited from there, the mystics used to talk about what used to talk about every entity being comprised of four elements. This was something that the ancient philosophers, both Jewish and not Jewish, spoke about as well. How everything is comprised of four elements. And some have gone to the periodic table and shown how even the modern elements all derive from one of these four elements. The four elements are like the band. The band? Earth, air, fire. What was that band? Earth, air, wind, fire. Earth, air, wind, fire. Yeah, but it's a little bit different because in Kabbalah we have water. So we have to modify it a little bit, but we'll, we'll do our best here. The four are Eish, Ruach, Mayim, and Afar. Eish is fire, Ruach is wind, Mayim is water, and Afar is dust. And everything is comprised of, of these four, composite of these four, that's according to Kabbalah. The soul also is comprised of these four. The animal soul is comprised of these four. And thus, Kabbalah tells us, again, it's right in the beginning, first chapter of Tanya, says that this gives rise to negative character traits that emerge from the animal soul. So the animal soul, again, the animal soul is not negative by nature, but it could lead to negative, could lead to negativity. So the fire element of the animal soul could lead to anger. Fire is passion. Is passion good or bad? Passion could be good or bad. Yeah, passion for good things is great. But passion can also be, someone's a little too passionate and gets too heated up about things, it can lead to anger and rage. I mean, that's, we know this, right? So fire can lead to negativity. What about air? Air could also lead. Air is like, air could also lead to negativity. It's like boasting and arrogance and narcissism. It's like hot air. It's like, it's like stuff that has no substance, but is like rising and, and blowing up and puffing up. It's ego. Is ego bad? You need a healthy ego to get through life. You have to be strong to get through life. You have to be confident to get through life. But could it go overboard to the point that it destroys oneself and relationships and other people? 100%. Ego could be devastating. So again, fire could be good, could not be good. Hot air could be good, it could not be good. Right? Um, passion is good, anger is not good. Confidence is good. Narcissism is not good. Let's talk about water. It says water, It says in Kabbalah that water is what sustains, is what nourishes all sorts of pleasurable things. It's interesting. I mean, it simply means that things grow, you know, food grows with water. But I think it's even more than that. You ever notice a food commercial? What they do when they design food commercials is they always put water on the food. You ever notice that? Right? No one ever showed like a dried out like tomato. It's like, oh, try this, dry it out tomato. Unless you're looking for dried tomatoes, but then it's a different, different commercial. But like the tomato will always have like droplets of water on it. Always have like moisture on it. Why? I don't know. It's, after, it's, 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 it's juicy. It's, it's, it's more. So water is symbolic. Water is synonymous, is synonymous with pleasure. Now, is pleasure evil? Pleasure is not evil. Pleasure is not bad. But could pleasure seeking lead to seeking pleasures and finding pleasures in negative spaces? Sure. Could it go overboard? Absolutely. So is pleasure inherently unholy? No. 
But can pleasure go too far or go into places that are unhealthy and unholy? Absolutely. So that's the third element. So fire is neutral but could be used for negative. The air could be, is neutral but could be used for negative. And water is neutral but could be used for the negative. And the last one is, is afar is dirt or dust. It's like a heaviness, which would be a seriousness. For example, introspection, which is like looking at oneself and saying, I need to improve this. That's healthy. But when it hits depression, when it's looking at oneself so negatively that one spirals into a state of depression and beats themselves up and I'm no good and life is terrible, when it goes too far, once again, it's unhealthy. So the animal soul, does all, all this make sense? Yeah? Okay. So the animal soul possesses these four elements, these four traits that could be either positioned for good, for growth, yeah, or to our detriment to lead us down a negative path. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to say something. Oh, no. Um. Well, I was going to wait. I have a good couple of questions. I was going to wait to the end. Okay, so yeah, I'm, I'm, almost, I'm almost done with this, with this piece, which is a critical piece. So all of that is from the animal soul. The godly soul, on the other hand, is pure and perfect. The godly soul doesn't have any traits that could lead to something negative. The godly soul is just all about altruism and selflessness in a good way. It's, not, it's, it's wholly positive. It's not at all negative. That's the difference between the godly soul and the animal soul. From the animal soul can come negative traits, from the godly soul, only positivity can emerge. And so the big question that we're, we're going to ask today, and we're going to go inside today into our text, don't worry. We're going to go inside our text. The big question on the table today is going to be, what's the purpose of giving the soul of the fetus an oath? Be righteous and don't be wicked. Yeah, Be a mensch, do the right thing, don't do the negative thing. You're giving it to the soul. This is the godly soul we're speaking about. The one, the candle that's learning the whole Torah that sees from one end of the world to the other. You're preaching to the choir, bro. It's like, what are you, you're telling the godly soul to be good and not be bad? Obviously. Right? The godly soul is about to contend with the animal soul and the body. Right? Why are you giving the oath to the soul? That's why to modify the translation. In our translation, this edition of the Talmud, it says, the soul is given to the fetus. But according to Kabbalah and the question that we have, the, 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 the oath is given to the, to the godly soul, which begs the question, what's the purpose of the oath to the godly soul? Of course the godly soul wants to only do good and not, not do bad. But it's not, but it's not the only game in town. In a moment, it's going to be put in a ring, what's the, that's the body, together with an opposing force and they're in a cage match to try to figure out which one is going to win in this moment and emerge in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. At any given moment, either one could emerge victorious and manifest in thought, speech, or action. So that's what's going on. Why would you give the oath to the godly soul, be righteous, don't be wicked, and be humble at the same time? Obviously. So to answer this, we're going to learn a new definition of the word oath. That an oath is not just a pledge, but an oath is an infusion of energy, an infusion of power to be able to see through the pledge. In other words, I'll say that one more time. In Hebrew, it works in Hebrew. In Hebrew, an oath is called a shavua. Shavua. If you revowalize the, that word and change it to sovea, 
a shin becomes a sin when you move the dot, right? Soveya, it means to satiate or to infuse with energy. The soul, the soul is not just given an oath. It's given an infusion of energy, of ability, of strength to withstand the challenges that it is about to face in the cage match that is life. That's what's, what happens before birth. What you think the soul is told, oh, promise, put your hand in the Bible and make a, make a promise that you're going to be good. What, what is that? Of course not. The oath is, sorry, the soul is given, Soveya is given power after power after power. It's like an infusion of energy to be able to navigate this incredibly challenging journey that we call life. That's what happens. Knowing this, makes the journey more manageable. Knowing that we have the power, knowing that you have the energy, that you, you have the strength, you have the ability, changes the game. Because if you think you don't have the ability, then you're done. If you think you don't have the ability to withstand the challenge, then you're, not, you're never going to withstand that challenge. It begins with belief, with the no, or more than belief, knowing that you have the ability, then you can see it through. This is what the Talmud is telling us, and this is what Kabbalah tells us. That every single one of us has all of the gifts that we need, all of the energy that we need to withstand the challenges that we will face, both external and internal, throughout life. That does not mean that we're always going to make the right choices. But it means that as we notice that we made the wrong choice, we also know that we have the, the capacity to rebound, the ability to pick ourselves back up and try again, the ability to dust ourselves off, to not get bogged down in the failure, and to, and to succeed the next time around. And if we don't, we try again. But we know that we have the ability to withstand the challenge. The, Tony, I saw what you just wrote. Um, let me write it here in the chat. The question is, what is the word? Um, Revalized from Shavua is sovea. 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 Okay, we'll, and we'll see it in a moment. We'll see. Oh, earth, wind, and fire is the band. Okay. Oh, earth, wind, and fire. Perfect. Earth, wind, and fire. It was missing the water. I guess they had no tivus. They had no uh, temptations. They had no... <laughs> All right, because water is the... Um, yes, Matt. Um, the angel. Is there any writings on the identity of the angel? Who's that angel? Hmm. Who's that angel? I know that angel is slap happy. It's like boom, boom, boom. No, but it's not a physical, it's not a physical thing. It means as, the, as life emerges and as the whole system comes together, the soul is now not the only game in town. Is there, who, is there an angel that does it? Could be. I don't know the identity of the angel. It might be in some commentaries that it's named. By the way, if you go to the... I would love that when they were bringing that But here's a hack. It's not even a hack. Go to Safaria, the website where I pulled this off of. I think it's S-E-F-A-R-I-A, Safaria.org. Type in Nida 30B, and then on each paragraph, you click on it, it pulls up on the right side of the page commentaries, both Hebrew and some in English, and you can follow that. And in commentaries, it might hyperlink to something else. This is like the ultimate rabbit hole of, of Talmudic study. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool how they, how they built that out. And why the mouth? Why the mouth, not the head? Why didn't it uh, so I explained, the because the mouth symbolizes the completion of the human being as an articulate being. In other words, the mouth, it's not about... Knocking this, knocking the wisdom, the, the information out of out of the fetus. That's not what it is. It means that now, when it when it when when this life is going to be born, 
It's going to be born in a way that communicates, and not the communication makes us forget, but it means that we're now a human being that communicates. And as a human being, that means that the soul is now in a body, and an animal soul as well, um, and thus it's not the only game in town, and therefore its, its awareness and its potency is necessarily cut and limited by its integration with the body. So the hitting the mouth is really about the soul's integration with the body. It's not about the mouth, per se. It's about the makabapathish. It's the final, the final blow of the hammer, so to speak. What's the final thing that the, the power that the, that, the, that the, the person is given is the ability to speak. By the way, that Maral says, I, I meant to mention this before. Maral says, remember, remember Moses? What did Moses say to God when God says, hey, Moses, be Moses, be the leader? What did Moses say? I can't, why? Because? I have a list. I can't speak. What did he mean? What did he mean? Lo ishtavar manochim, not a man of words. That's what he says to God. What does that mean? He didn't get the communication. What does that mean? Of course he communicated. He didn't, he was still a soul not covered by the body. Does that make sense? In a, yes? He never got the tap? Not literally he never got tapped, but he wasn't, he didn't, the tapping is symbolic of a soul going into the body and now it's hidden. And Moses' soul never got hidden by his body. You with me on this? He was never a fully finished human in the way that the soul is now concealed by the body. And by the way, you can only communicate what you can articulate, what, what the mind understands so concrete that it can communicate. When you understand something abstract on a high level, sometimes you can't communicate it. He says, Loish Devarim, I see things here, I'm not down here to communicate. Are you with me on this? That's what the morale says about Moses. So everyone else, we can speak, we can communicate because it's cut, what we know is cut to the point that it can be delivered in bite-sized pieces to someone else. But Moses had vision, had, had this awareness that's too big to communicate. So he's like, you got the wrong guy. You need, you need someone else who sees less, who knows less, but who can, who can convey a message. I got, I got the, and God's like, I know who I'm picking. What do you think? Who do you think you are, Moses? Uh, right, like, I, I know who I got. And, and Aaron will be, huh? yeah, too much chachma. Yeah, too much wisdom, too much awareness, too much perception. Some of the greatest visionaries of history they were not understood in their lifetimes. Only later on, when, when, when progress happened, that people looked back and said, whoa, that's who they were. That's what was good. They were ahead of their time. It means that they, they couldn't articulate it in their lifetime. They couldn't bring it down. It was too big. The light was too big for the vessel, to use other terms that we've used before. Anyway, but so as far as the angel's identity, we got to look it up. I'll save the other ones for later. Kevin Costner, was he an angel? No? Field of Dreams? Wasn't oh. that? I have a question. Yes, Mariana. Yeah. I, I, I want to know if always the two souls are together. I'm thinking when you re reincarnate, are they the same like two souls together always? Two souls are typically, they're typically locked in battle, even if we're not aware of it. There's, we're being pulled in two different directions. But we have a choice at any moment which soul we're going to express. Are we going to express the higher soul or the lower soul? But it's, there's, there's a lot of tension there. In, in Tanya, he says it's like a wrestling match with two strong people that are, that are, that are wrestling with each other. There's a lot of internal struggle. I mean, we... 
we, it's, it's not always easy to do the right thing. But I think there are times when we find it a little bit more easier and times when we find it a little bit harder. Sometimes maybe the, the godly soul is a little bit stronger and sometimes the animal soul is a little bit stronger. It just depends on the day or the moment. Ah, yeah. okay. No, that, that, that's so beautiful. It's, 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 this class is, is amazing. I'm thinking all the time when, when working in the jail, yeah. that always I say, like, there is something that it's good in, in everybody. Right. And, but now it's so clear, like, to explain that it's, it's... One of the most empowering messages is this message. No, no matter what you've done, no matter where you, who you think you are, you have a godly soul. Without exception, you have a godly soul. And when a person knows that, it's a game changer. It's a 100% game changer. It, the, the biggest problem, the problem, the biggest challenge that we have is we don't know or don't believe that we have this goodness inside or that we have this, this strength of, of goodness inside. That, that becomes our, the challenge is when we don't know about it or we don't believe in it. This is what the Talmud is trying to teach us and what Kabbalah teaches us is that we have this energy. We have... We have all the clarity. We have the, the clarity of Moses. Okay, now it's a little bit more challenging because it's not the only, it's not the only uh, force that we have, but it's still there. It's still there. Matt, you had something else? So adding on to Mariana's question, yeah. when the godly soul is hovering above the fetus, yeah. when does the animal soul enter the question? Oh, okay. So Matt's asking the question. So, it, and, and alongside what Mariana asked, so if, there's the, if in, the feed, in the womb, if you have the fetus, which is just the... the form of the body, and then you have the godly soul, when does the animal soul enter? The animal soul enters on birth. The animal soul enters at birth. And the godly soul also enters, but the godly soul doesn't fully integrate immediately. It kind of, it takes a little bit of time. It integrates more than it was, but not necessarily 100% until different stages unfold. We spoke about this a few weeks ago. There are different like milestones. Like uh, the bris and the baby naming and the bar bat mitzvah, 12, 13, and then other stages in life where we become more integrated and, and that sort of thing. So there, there, there is like a, a bit of a rollout, but the animal soul is pretty much at birth. That's what hits. The godly soul also, but the godly soul is a little bit of a slower process as we might sense ourselves. It's sometimes, it's, it feels a little bit harder sometimes to do the, to do the right and good thing. Let's, I, I did promise that we're going to read inside, and we have a few minutes left, so let's read inside. Let's see if we can, uh, we can read some of this text inside, because the, the, the payoff is, we're at Discourse 14, the payoff is huge, and I want to make sure that we, we read this. Um, past the Sand oh, Sandrina's book, okay. All right, either way, yeah, I can leave it right there. I'm going to share my screen once again, and let's jump in. Okay, we are on page... 204, here we go, 204 in the middle of the page, where it says accordingly, okay? So, and, and, and we, did, we did up until there last time, and I, I already reviewed it just in the last few minutes, I kind of went over that about the two souls, but let's jump into where it says accordingly. Accordingly, he says, now we can understand the verse that says, the souls which I've made. God says, I've made souls, plural. In other words, I, not so many people have souls, but within one person, there are multiple souls. There are multiple personalities, right? The souls which I have made. And again, an empowering, as you mentioned, Mariana pointed this out, it is what a powerful idea to know that I have another, even if I've identified with one, with my lower soul, I have this other soul. 
Okay, so according to the souls which I have made, this refers to the godly soul and the animal soul, two souls within every human being. And the godly soul, look what he says clearly. I told this to you um, when, when we were studying the Talmud, but now you don't, even, you don't even have to believe me. You just read this text because it's right here. The godly soul is taught the entire Torah, and it is administered an oath to be righteous and not be wicked. And here's the big question that he asks, but it's not understood. So the Kabbalah is asking on the Talmud, but it's not understood. What is the meaning of the oath which the godly soul takes over the animal soul. The capacity for evil lies in the province of the animal soul. For, the, for it is the source of evil traits like anger, arrogance, indulgence, frivolity, boastfulness, idle talk, laziness, and depression. All four, okay, I've said four, fire, wind, water, earth, okay? But these are more than more than four because there's multiple per each one. So the, the, the capacity for negativity, for evil, for potential evil comes from the animal soul. And the godly soul is the one given the oath. So he asked the question, what is the meaning of the godly soul swearing about this? Why would you give the oath to the godly soul? You're talking the godly soul. Godly, Mr. or Mrs. Godly soul, I want you to be at Sadiq. Of course. What's the other option? Oh, 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 oh because the negativity, that's the other soul. You got the wrong... You, you got the wrong person. You got the wrong soul. You have a, the capacity for evil lies in the other part, not me. So here he explains what shavua really means. To explain, the Hebrew word for oath, shavua, you see that word right here, shavua, bottom paragraph on 204. The Hebrew word for oath, shavua, is similar to sova. Oh, I wrote sovea. Sova, which means satiety. Sova represents the powers granted man from on high to enable him to perform his service of studying Torah and fulfilling mitzvot. In the physical sense, when man's hunger is satisfied, he is not only vigorous in body, but in spirit as well. As is written, we were stayed with bread and fared well. This, which means we were full with bread and fared well. That means that we were also full with spirit. The same applies to spirituality. Satiety refers to the powers granted man from on high. Hence, an oath is administered to him means that he is satiated, filled with energy by receiving strength from his earliest source and root to be able to overcome the animal soul and refrain from being wicked. The oath is not just an oath. The oath is not just a promise. The oath is an infusion of energy. Imagine. Imagine you go, I don't know, I, I think there's medical things where you, I think it's illegal. In cycling. Who's a cycling person? You cycling? Yeah. So in cycling, I think one of the scandals that broken over the last 5-10 years or more is um, blood doping, right? Where they take, where they give the, the cyclists blood infusions of higher red bloods, I don't know, I'm making stuff up now, but they give the athletes blood infusions to kind of give them an extra boost, and that's illegal and whatever. It is what it is. I'm not advocating, I'm just saying. But this is like a boost for the soul. It's giving the godly soul, Mr. Godly Soul or Mrs. Godly Soul, you're about to enter the ring. I'm giving you, says God, I'm giving you, or the angel God, giving you all of the strength and all the energy that you'll ever need in this ring in this cage match of life. You will have every single force, every single ounce of energy that you'll need to be able to overcome the animal soul and refrain from being wicked. That's the oath. Because otherwise the oath is going to the wrong party. Promise that you'll be good. I am good. It's the other guy you're worried about. No, it's not a promise you'll be good. It's I'm giving you the strength 
to be able to overcome, to withstand the challenge and to overcome. 206, 206. And he now connects the allegorical meaning to the simple meaning. This is beautiful. This is also the simple meaning of the word oath. In other words, an oath in its literal sense means the same thing. It means an infusion of power. How? Listen to this. When a person swears to do something, he will be compelled to fulfill his oath regardless of obstacles and difficulties. In other words, why does a person say, I promise I'll do it? Why? Because the promise itself is locking them in even when it's difficult. If it, if it was easy, why would you make a promise? Are you with me on this? You don't need to make a promise or a pledge or a commitment if it's easy. Does that make any sense? If it's easy, then you don't need to make a commitment. You're just doing it because it's easy. The reason why I make a commitment is you tell yourself that if at some point it becomes difficult and I want to tap out and bounce, I've made a commitment and that commitment's going to hold me bound to this obligation because of that commitment, which means that the commitment itself is infusing you with the power, with the, with the commitment, with the energy that you'll need to see it through. Let's continue. No excuse will be acceptable. When a person accepts the pledge, no excuse will be acceptable. He must perform. The pledge will help him call upon latent essential powers. In other words, the, 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 the stuff that we have deep inside, on which there is no obstacle or barrier. As, as is the saying, as the saying goes, and this is one of the most powerful statements in Judaism, Ein davar ha-rotzo. Nothing stands in the way of will. When you want something, you will achieve it. Nothing stands, and I say, well, hold on one second. What if a guy with a gun stands in the way of a will? Fine, but it means internal, uh, internal obstacles. External obstacles, your mileage may vary. But internal obstacles, nothing stands in the way of will. When you want something, when you really want something, when you really, really want something, you have the power to do it. This is the significance of the oath administered to the godly soul. That he call forth latent strengths he possesses. He meaning the godly soul, which is non-gendered, obviously. But that the soul call forth latent strengths that the soul possesses by virtue of his origin. Then there will be no hindrance by the animal soul, for he will overpower it. Which means that all a person, not all, I don't want to minimize it, but when a person today, now, now, right now, in this state of life, not pre, you know, in, in utero, right now. When a person who's faced with challenges, and we all know our struggles, everyone's got something that we're struggling with, when we are facing our challenges, and then we stop for a moment and, 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 and remind ourselves that who are we? We're not just a flawed and broken human being that's, that, that fails, but we are a piece of God. We have a piece of God inside of us. And that piece of God has all of the strength and all of the power and all the energy it needs to see this through and not get stuck and not, and not become overwhelmed by the challenge. When we believe, when we know that, when we believe that, we will be able to call forth that energy and see it through. Let's continue. So man's excuse, a person's excuse that his natural passion was too strong to, re to restrain is thus annulled. The person says, I can't. What do you expect? I can't do it. It's my, my natural passion is too strong. My temptation is too big. That excuse doesn't hold water in the ultimate, in the ultimate analysis from a Jewish perspective, from a mystical perspective. His godly soul is superior and earlier in its source than the animal soul. And man, the human being, has strength deriving from his source. So he does have the ability to dominate his animal soul, even if the animal soul is strong. The strength of the animal soul comes from its first source in tow, and because of its source in klibat noga. But the godly soul is rooted far higher than tohu. Tohu, pah, 
I look down at Tohu. I'm kidding. Right? But Tohu is, yeah, Tohu is world chaos, strong energy, sure. But the godly soul is even higher and has great, the, the greater force to overpower the animal soul. When the natural passions wax hot. I don't know why, it's, why are we waxing poetic here. When the natural passions are very strong, it indicates that the godly soul is correspondingly more vigorous too. And not only is it equally balanced, but again, the godly soul is stronger. But, and here's, and this is it. This is the paragraph. This is where it puts it back into our hands. But this, all of this, depends on man's, on our choice. If he truly desires not to turn from the path of God, he will awaken within himself the tremendous strength of the godly soul and overcome the animal soul. If you and I decide that we're not going to go down that path of folly, right? Because overcoming folly. That foolish path. If we decide that we're not going to go down the path of distraction. If we decide that we're going to stay where we need to be, then we'll be able to do it. His inability to control his animal passion stems from his failure to call forth these powers. In other words, if I fail, it's not because I couldn't, it's because I didn't. From on high, he has been granted powers to resist the animal soul and conquer it. It depends on him or her to arouse this powerful force of the godly soul within him. This is, again, an, an incredibly empower, empowering teaching of Kabbalah. At the end, it may sound like it's a little finger-wagging, like, oh, you should... But it's not finger-wagging. It's absolutely empowering. It's uplifting. It's telling us, you and I, that each of us has the ability to be whatever it is that we want to be and to be as lofty and divine and good and right. Whatever phrase you want to use and whatever you want to put in there, we have the ability to be whatever it is that we want to be. Yes. Could, could there be some out external opposition? Sure. Sure. You can't control the other person. You can't, but we can control ourselves that we can control ourselves and we have the ability. Knowing this doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. Don't, don't, don't get ahead of yourself. We're not going to be perfect just because we know this. Oh, now we'll be perfect. Now, we still have the, we still have the animal soul. It's not going anywhere. It's not budging. But knowing that we have this ability is an absolute game changer. It's empowering. In a world, and I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, in a world that ever so subtly or not so subtly seeks to disempower us, in a world that says, you are a victim, you are weak, you are vulnerable. In a world that focuses so much, so often, on the negative, on the weaknesses, Kabbalah focuses on the positive. Kabbalah focuses on the strengths. Kabbalah says, you can do it. You have the ability. Now choose it. Are we going to always choose it? Are we always going to get it right? No. But even as we fail, we know that we can pick ourselves back up and become strong in the process. Thank you very much for joining me today for Kabbalah and Coffee. I hope this made sense. I hope that this will help inspire your week as we, as we are here on the seventh night of Hanukkah. Um, we have a lot, of, a lot of candles lit. Tonight, full on candelabra action. We have a small table. Man, someone's got to be watching that table the whole time, right? Just saying, there's a lot of fire going on, a lot of light, and may this week be a week that has just the most tremendous light for all of us. And let's recognize that the greatest light is not the light that we kindle on a menorah, on a candelabra, but the light that we have inside, the light of the soul. That pure potency that's filled with that infusion of divine energy even before birth. All the power that we'll ever need is within us. We just have to unpack it. All right. I want to wish everybody three things. Number one, Shavuot Tov, which is good week. Chodesh Tov which is a good month because it's Rosh Chodesh, Tevet, which, by the way, Tevet doesn't have any Jewish holidays. It's the only month 
that has no special holidays. So it's our job to take the light and bring it in. We, this is our work. We don't have any benefit of stuff on the calendar. Now we got to do the work this month. We got we to pull and, and bring the energy into this month on our own. So Tevet begins, Chodesh Tov, Chanukah Sameach, special announcement this Thursday night. I said there's no special days on the calendar. Okay, with the exception of Thursday night. <laughs> Thursday. Hey, Tevis, the fifth day of Tevis, which is the day that celebrates Jewish literature and Jewish books. Why is that day connected? Come Thursday, and I'll explain why. But Thursday is a celebration of Jewish books, Jewish literature. I don't mean a Jewish novel, although Jewish novels are fine. I mean like books that you can study to build a Judaics library the books that will help build that or enhance your Judaic library. We have over, right here in this building right now, over a hundred different titles, not a hundred of the same book, right? A hundred different, over a hundred different titles that you can peruse and explore and purchase Thursday. It's going to be an incredible evening filled with great food, inspiration. We have a multimedia, huh? Of course. Of course, a multimedia um, experience showcasing the history of the Jewish printing press and also the most priceless Jewish books of all time. Fascinating exploration. We'll do that and then we'll open up the floor. It's gonna be right here in Jeff's place. So if you want, want to know what Jeff's place looks like, this is Jeff's place right here. This is Jeff's place with tables and kind of empty. But um, it's gonna be all set up with books Thursday night in person. Tomorrow, tomorrow, Monday, tomorrow night? Oh, tomorrow night, no? we're postponing it. Okay. Even though it's Rosh Chodesh. Yeah, so, we ha so Rosh Chodesh, so let's do a few announcements. So Rosh Chodesh Society is scheduled for tomorrow night, but we're, we have to push it off due to scheduling conflicts. So an announcement will go out today about the new date for RCS for Rosh Chodesh. Um, new course on the Matrix, Kabbalah the Matrix begins Tuesday night, online only. I figured we might as well just plug into the matrix as we study about the matrix. So that's Tuesday night at 8. Thursday night classes, Thursday night event is at 7 p.m. And otherwise, um, uh, it's, I look forward to seeing you all um, multiple times this week. <laughs> okay. All right, everybody. Take care. Shavuot Tov. Chodesh Tov. Chanukah Sameach. Pleasure, pleasure. Good to see everybody. Great to see you all. All right, pleasure. Oh, no, you know, I didn't explain that. That's, um, I should have explained that. The, it's, well, on one level, you can say it's just natural. Like, as when, when the soul is not the only game in town, when it contends with a body that has its own stuff and an animal soul that has its own stuff, so automatically it just, it just forgets. But really, it's about us recreating it. I maybe, maybe I alluded to it. I don't think I said it clearly. It's about recreating it on our own. It's like seeing the picture, and then the picture goes away, and it's like, okay, what did you see? And what's the value of that? It's like the difference between life in the womb or life here. Life here is a struggle, but that gives, its val that gives it value. Life in the womb is easy, but it's not valuable. It's not like we didn't accomplish anything by just, you know... <laughs> I mean, sitting by the beach is nice, but it doesn't actually, it's not real life. It doesn't, like, no one ever became stronger by lying on the beach all day, right?
So it's so the strength is in this space of earning it on our own, so to speak. And that's what we do when we forget all the wisdom and have to recreate it. But also, even as we forget it, we still remember it. Which is why teachings, hopefully like these, resonate with us. Because it reminds us of that old tune that we once heard. It's like, oh, I remember that song. Can't place it, but it sounds familiar. It's like that old tune. We also that we're getting a slight head start. Yes. That's the other reason that's given. It gives us a head start, and it allows us, so we're not starting from scratch, but we already have, it's like, it's like when you're hiking, and you're not the first one to walk that trail, so it's already, it's already been walked before, just makes the, you still have to do the, you still have to do the climbing, you still have to do the walking, but it's already been done before, by you even, in this case, which is pretty cool. Um, I have some, it's probably best way to call it parties questions. Okay. So I, I was reading um, the statue with Joe, and it's at least the, on the Chabad.org, Rashi made it sound like, at least in that Job section, that it was more um, literal than when Job said that word, I guess, in the story, that it was more literal. But then I would assume that a Rashi would be a commentary, most, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that would be the most simplest one. And then this notion of what Joe was talking about was being in the room. <laughs> this is so good. Aye, uh, aye. Yeah. <laughs> He's okay. Just uh, one of the stuff fell over. Oh. Uh, which, which verse in Job? Was it from the Talmud? Yeah, it was um, 29.2 in Job. Right, right. Which side was that on? You have 29.2 and 29.2. Oh, yeah, with candles lit above his head when a lamp shined above my head. Yeah, that in the, on the, yeah, it's making me pull it up again. That the, Rashi made that sound. Like very literal. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what, uh, what that I were, as in my early months, like mm. the early days when I was in my greatness. Right. Which I think would then make sense for the actual just reading the story of Job. Right. But then I would assume that... This is a Talmudic, right. This is a Talmudic non-literal interpretation of it, exactly. And then I guess, if I know like, not all these lines of parties are clear, but then which, I guess, what would you say, which, I guess, level of parties? I would go probably drush. I would put it at three. But three, which touches on four, because we are touching on Kabbalah, a little bit of the Sod, a little bit of the, of the mystical part of it, ultimately. I, you know, it's sometimes hard to figure out which layer of, of, yeah, of interpretation it is. There is a little bit of uh, leading. And ultimately, Torah is holistic, which means that it's kind of like emotion, physical health, emotional health, psychological health, and spiritual health. Well, they're four different things, but for someone to be healthy, you know, it, typically they're going to be healthy on all four levels in, in various ways. So it's kind of like, are they different? Yeah, but do they kind of like bleed into each other, so to speak? Yeah. And then it, this is probably like... The Rebbe would speak about that very often and say like, if, if an interpretation exists on a, on a more mystical level, it also has to have some place in the physical, and the, 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 sorry, the literal level as well. Yeah. Okay, and then the last one. You said that you referred fetus with those, because um, it was not in the bold. Right. How, how, right. How did whoever was, I guess, doing the translations... Why would they infer fetus? 
I guess they're inferring, I guess they're interpreting as the entire, the, the totality of that being, the fetus, is not the Torah. But, I don't know, I, it's, according to Kabbalah, as you saw inside, it's the soul of the, the soul that's earmarked for the fetus before its integration, it's not the entire Torah, and given that oath. A little bit of a different understanding. Why did they say fetus? I don't know. We would have to look up the commentaries and see what the commentaries say, like on the Talmud, Talmud commentaries. We know what Kabbalah says on it, but what do the classic Talmud commentaries say on it? I'm not sure. But it's on Safari. You can, you can have fun over there because you can find it. And I think a lot of Rashi's are translated. I want to say that. I think they are. Um, I think I looked last night. Oh, I'm, I have now the Maral opened up. It's only in Hebrew. The one that I quoted before about the, the mouth and the meaning of that. And he says, Moses... Um, look at this he says since Moses was so high he wasn't he wasn't a physical he wasn't close to the physical he was a completely different level therefore he was missing he was missing the not necessarily physically but he was missing the concept of the articulation the, 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 the mundane articulation I love the interpretation. I never thought of that when he said, um, "I can't." I'm not. A, I'm not a person. Right. Like, the ideas are so big that I can't actually physically translate them into human. Right. It's too big. It's too lofty. Yeah. I, I, this, he's Marl's brilliant. I mean, what are you going to say? Um, uh, we're happy that he articulated his interpretation for us to, to study. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I can't. You know, I don't see it here. Oh. Um, no. All right, I would have to pull it up again. But I, w- I would, I would uh, encourage you to check it out. This is what it looks like, safari.org. Probably pull up. Oh, while looking for that, um, everyone at GitHub uses apples, and lots of people are having problems with the upgrade. <laughs> Because of the Wi-Fi connection? Oh no, well, different. Well, actually, even worse because one guy, his all of his um, connection to the work apps didn't 